The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have not left us nor forsaken us, uh, but you have left us uh, your spirit uh, that works through us and for raising up godly men and women uh, to stand uh, on your word uh, no matter the consequence. And so, Lord, we thank you for the life and witness of those uh, during the Reformation, uh, especially this morning, William Tyndale. Uh, Lord, we take for granted uh, that we can read your word to us uh, in a language we can understand. And so, Lord, give us grateful hearts that you have spoken to us and that you have worked your word into our hearts so that we might be made your children. Be with Andrew uh, now as he comes and brings a word to us, Lord, that indeed uh, we might see Jesus this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I've been introducing Andrew for the last uh, several weeks, so I won't do it anymore, uh, but glad he's here from Oxford. And uh, as I told him earlier, uh, I've really been talking this up, so don't blow it. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's lovely to be with you. Uh, my first ever uh, visit to Alabama. Um, and um, thank you for your hospitality uh, this time. And I, it's a delight to be able to join in with this 500th uh, anniversary celebration that I think you're having right throughout the year. Different speakers looking at Reformation, uh, Reformation themes. Uh, the, the three talks uh, this morning, tonight, and then tomorrow night are all uh, focused upon the Reformation in England uh, back in Tudor days. So, so William Tyndale this morning, uh, if you happen to be there uh, tonight, we're looking at Archbishop Cranmer uh, and then at some of the Marian martyrs um, tomorrow evening. Uh, but William Tyndale and uh, Bible translating more generally uh, in the 16th century this morning. The most significant book uh, for the English-speaking Christian uh, is, of course, the English-speaking Bible. Uh, and uh, this chap, William Tyndale, stands out from the crowd as the pioneer translator. I don't know what uh, English Bible translation you usually use. Uh, perhaps you have multiple different versions at home, but all of them, every single one, owes a great deal to this individual, William Tyndale. Uh, the authorised version, the King James Version, perhaps the most famous translation of all time into English, produced by a committee, uh, in a later generation, but a great deal of it comes straight from Tyndale. In fact, did you know 90% of the New Testament uh, in the King James Version is Tyndale's translation? This is the man who gets the ball rolling, uh, who sets the standard for every English Bible to follow. Uh, and to help us understand a little bit uh, about Tyndale and his context, uh, I want to introduce you more broadly to Bible translating in the 16th century, uh, and then we'll come to uh, Tyndale in particular. So let me take you first to the 15th century Renaissance, the biggest renewal movement of the Middle Ages, major intellectual and cultural revolution. The Renaissance, of course, means the rebirth. And it's associated with a network of scholars, poets, philosophers, artists uh, in Italy, uh, and then flows across the Alps into the rest of Europe. And the Renaissance is marked by this explosion in new knowledge, uh, creativity, discovery in fields as diverse as history, cosmology, architecture, linguistics, geography, technology, mathematics, uh, political theory. This is the age of the polymaths, uh, Leonardo uh, da Vinci, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, and uh, Michelangelo, remember in that, that period, uh, commissioned to decorate the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Nicholas Copernicus uh, is uh, a canon of a cathedral, a little bit like this one, but in Poland, uh, he's uh, discovering the heliocentric 
uh, order of the universe. And while these scholars in, in Europe are discovering all sorts of new things about the world, so a new world is also opening up to European adventurers across the oceans. Uh, the Genoese colonist uh, Cristoforo Colombo, of course, comes to this part of the world on behalf of Fernando and Isabel of Aragon and Castile, uh, and his convoy sights land, you remember, October of 1492, uh, at what is now the Bahamas. And so it's going on right around the world, this discovery of uh, things across the planet. Vasco da Gama sailing uh, down on the west coast of Africa around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, sponsored by the King of Portugal. But Renaissance scholars are also keen not to discover, just dis- discover the planet on which we exist, uh, but also rediscover the wisdom of ancient civilizations, old texts, especially uh, the Greco-Roman worlds. Uh, they had a motto uh, in Latin, ad fontes, which means go back to the source, uh, go back to the fountainhead, reappropriate the classical texts uh, which had been forgotten in medieval Europe. So they're trying to engage uh, with the writings of Plato and Cicero and Seneca and Galen uh, and others and stimulate new advances in philosophy and law uh, and medicine. The study of Greek, did you know, for the first time, really, uh, in Western Europe becomes popular uh, from the 1450s onwards. Uh, Islamic conquest has just dem- uh, decimated the eastern half of Christendom. Uh, Byzantium uh, is conquered, and all these Greek texts flow over into uh, Western Europe for the first time. Uh, uh, Christian scholars become interested in them. But Christian scholars say, well, uh, we're not just going to invest our energies in the original texts of these Greco-Roman philosophers and lawyers. What about the original texts of the Bible itself? What about the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophets? Lorenzo Valla, he's a hundred years before William Tyndale. Uh, He is a a Christian scholar with tremendous linguistic training. And he puts it to good use uh, in, uh, in the court of the King of Sicily and Naples, and begins to look at uh, Christian documents with new eyes. There's a famous text called The Donation of Constantine, uh, and this purports uh, to show that in uh, the early 4th century, uh, the Emperor Constantine the Great bestowed the western half of his empire uh, upon the Pope, Pope Sylvester I and his successors. Uh, And in the medieval church, uh, this Christian text is used as evidence uh, that the Pope in Rome that has temporal authority upon Western Europe. Well, this Christian scholar examines the text and discovers it's a forgery. Uh, It's uh, completely made up uh, in a later century. And then he begins to say, uh, I'm going to put the Bible under the same sort of spotlights. Bible, of course, was uh, being read in Latin. It had been translated in the early church by Jerome, a wonderful linguist. Uh, Jerome had understood Hebrew and Greek, translated into Latin, but no one else had looked at the original text in detail for a thousand years. Uh, They were all reading uh, the Latin scriptures. And so Valor uh, gets his Latin and begins to compare with the actual writings uh, of the apostles and notices uh, some uh, striking discrepancies. For example, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus uh, proclaims at the start of his ministry, uh, metanoiti, 
uh, says uh, the text in Greek, for the kingdom of heaven is close uh, at hand. Jerome translates that uh, into Latin, uh, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. And for a thousand years, that has been the the text that every Christian uh, in the Latin West has been reading. And of course, it encourages uh, the medieval church to develop uh, outward religious ceremonials of penance as a sacrament. Uh, Fowler looks at the Greek and he says, it doesn't say do penance, it says repent for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. That's quite a different thing. That's not an outward uh, church ceremony, that's an inward change of heart. And then he's looking at Luke's gospel and he's reading the text that they've read for a thousand years, Luke chapter 1 uh, verse 28, uh, the angel Gabriel remember, uh, greets uh, the Virgin Mary, and uh, how is it described uh, in the Latin? Uh, Jerome translates, Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. You may uh, have heard those words. Uh, He looks at the Greek. Actually, it says, Hail Mary, highly favoured. Quite a different thing. Uh, For a thousand years, full of grace uh, had been uh, uh, taken to mean that uh, perhaps Mary was uh, a source of divine grace somehow. She's full of grace, unlike the rest of us. She has more grace than we do. Perhaps she has uh, more grace than she needs and can lend some of her grace uh, to other Christians. Hail Mary, full of grace. It's a mistranslation. uh, And uh, this Christian scholar is going back uh, and discovering very significant changes. Some of the errors that are found uh, in his Latin Bible uh, were um, perhaps less serious, uh, but you might know the famous case of Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29, uh, when Moses, after meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai, uh, has rays of light, uh, says the Hebrew, uh, coming from his head. Uh, remember that uh, account of the radiant face and the veil Uh, to cover Moses' face. But the Hebrew word uh, can also mean horns, as well as rays of light. And Jerome, in his wisdom, uh, decided to translate it uh, in that way. So um, here we have Michelangelo's Moses uh, in a church in Rome, very famous statue. He's reading his Latin Bible, uh, not the original text. So we've got Moses with horns uh, from his head. Very strange. Or when you send Christmas cards... Uh, I wonder if they look uh, something like this. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, quite difficult to translate. Uh, Something along the lines of, uh, Lord, I've heard of your fame. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. In the midst of years, uh, make him live. Uh, Well, Jerome translates into Latin, in the midst of the beasts, between the animals. Uh, let him live. And they, they, they compare with Isaiah and discover that those two animals must be an ox and an ass. Uh, ever since in medieval portraiture and in our Christmas cards, uh, you'll find uh, the Christ child, uh, baby Jesus, born, uh, and there's an ox on one side, an ass on the other. All these little mistakes go back to uh, Bible translations uh, which needed to be improved. And during the Renaissance, this there's this great rebirth of a desire to get back to the original scriptures and see what they have to say uh, at first hand. Uh, notice, please, that it wasn't uh, Protestant theologians, first of all, who had the idea of going back to the Greek and the Hebrew. This is a, a, a Catholic project. Uh, most of these early linguists are, are, are Catholic 
scholars. Uh, take, for example, in Spain. Uh, this is in the early 16th century, just a, a few ye- years uh, before William Tyndale. There was a great landmark project to publish the entire Bible uh, in its original languages uh, for the first time, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic uh, and uh, the Greek. And uh, uh, it's a great cardinal from Rome, Francisco, um, the Archbishop of Toledo, uh, who leads that work. It's actually dedicated to Pope Leo X in Rome. And the cardinal expresses his hope that the hitherto dormant study of Holy Scripture may now at last begin to revive. And he observes that with access to the original text, rather than just the Latin, the Bible student can quench his thirst at the very fountain of the water that flows unto life everlasting and not have to content himself with rivulets alone. Perhaps the greatest brain in those days, uh, the leading uh, Renaissance scholar, prodigious polymath, is Erasmus of Rotterdam. Uh, born in the Netherlands, uh, one of the great literati uh, of the day, travelling through France and England and uh, Italy and uh, Switzerland. Uh, and uh, he decides, he's the first person in history, this is just ten years before Tyndale, and Tyndale owes a lot to Erasmus. First person in history actually to publish uh, the Bible in its original language, uh, the New Testament, uh, in its original Greek for the first ever time. It's not dedicated to Martin Luther. Um, it's actually dedicated again to the Pope in Rome. Uh, very striking. Uh, and the Pope uh, welcomes this biblical scholarship uh, and encourages Erasmus, you will receive from God himself a worthy reward for all your labours, from us the commendation you deserve, and from all Christ's faithful people lasting renowned. Uh, but Erasmus, like Tyndale after him, uh, begins to be subversive. Because he says, not only are we going to have the Bible in the original language, but we're now going to translate it from the original into all the languages of the world. We're not going to leave it just as a scholastic uh, project for the professors uh, and the scholars. We're going to start putting Bibles uh, in the hands of uh, the people. At the the front of this, uh, this New Testament Uh, Erasmus writes a passionate preface that Tyndale learns a lot from. It's called the Paraclesis, the exhortation. And it's an exhortation for Christians to re-engage with the Bible. He says it's shameful. Here we are in the 16th century, and those who claim to follow Jesus Christ know so little of his teachings. He says if you ask uh, uh, someone from a Jewish community or a Muslim community, they will know what is in their holy books. Uh, But if you ask a Christian, uh, they seem rather clueless on the subject. Uh, He says that the church pays more attention to pagan philosophers like Aristotle and Plato or scholastic authors like Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus rather than to Jesus Christ uh, and the teaching of the apostles. Or he says if you're in a religious order in the 16th century, uh, you you couldn't go anywhere in the 1520s without bumping into a monk uh, or a nun or a friar of some description. Uh, in Western Europe. They populated every uh, town and city. And he says, well, all these religious orders, the Benedictines, the Augustans, the Franciscans, they revere their rules of St. Benedict uh, and St. Augustine and St. Francis, but they seem to hold these church rules in higher honour than the the Book of God, uh, than the teaching of 
the apostles. Uh, And he mocks those in his day who cling to religious relics uh, rather than clinging to the Bible. Uh, Here's a little quotation. If anyone shows us the footprints of Christ, uh, in what manner, as Christians, do we prostrate ourselves? uh, And how do we adore them? Uh, You could go on pilgrimage in those days to the Mount of Olives uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and the friars in charge of the shrine would point to you at the stone with uh, the footprints of Christ on, uh, which they said this was almost the launch pad from which the ascension took place, uh, and uh, the footprints were behind. Well, thousands of Christians in Europe are going uh, to study uh, these things. Uh, Paraclesis says, uh, why not venerate instead the living and breathing likeness of him in these books, in the Scriptures? If anyone displays the tunic of Christ, to what corner of the earth uh, do we not hasten so that we may kiss it? You know the story of the, uh, the holy coat um, at Trier in Germany. Uh, this is a city um, just near Luxembourg. Uh, they have a cathedral there which for the last uh, eight or nine hundred years has claimed to have the holy coat of Christ. That's the, the coat that his mother Mary uh, wove for him in one piece. Um, And uh, archbishops of Trier would put this on display and all the Christians in Western Europe would head out uh, to try and find this piece of his clothing. Paraclesis continues, Yet were you to bring forth his entire wardrobe, it would not manifest Christ more clearly and truly than the gospel writings. We embellish a wooden or stone statue with gems and gold for the love of Christ. Uh, Why not rather mark with gold and gems and with ornaments of greater value than these, if such there be, these writings which bring Christ to us so much more effectively than any paltry image. And then he ends with these words. This is the most radical proposal uh, in the whole of the, the scheme. I disagree very much with those who are unwilling that Holy Scripture, translated into the vulgar tongue, be read by the uneducated. As if Christ taught such intricate doctrines that they should scarcely be understood but by a very few theologians, and if the strength of the Christian religion consisted in people's ignorance of it. The mysteries of kings, perhaps, are better concealed, but Christ wishes his mysteries published as openly as possible. I would that everyone reads, uh, the Gospels, the Pauline epistles. I would that they were translated into all languages so that they could be read and understood not only by Scots and Irish, but also by Turks and Saracens. This is a highly inflammatory, revolutionary idea. The Pope is very happy uh, to have people working away on the Greek New Testament as long as the church keeps control of it um, and the theologians can tell you what it has to say. Erasmus is is saying, now we know what the Greek and Hebrew say. Let's put it even into Gaelic, even into uh, the language of the people in Scotland and Ireland, uh, near where I live. That's unthinkable in those days. English, possibly. Scots, surely not. Um, (laughs) And and then he says, Turks and Saracens. Uh, The Ottoman Empire in those days was the great threat upon European stability and safety. Uh, This was the 16th century equivalent of of ISIS or Islamic State, uh, carrying all before them uh, as they swept into Europe. They got up to the very verge of of, uh, Vienna uh, with their troops. And Erasmus is saying, let's put the Bible into Arabic 
uh, so that we can have evangelists uh, even going to these uh, Muslim communities. Highly uh, radical idea. Of course, there were, there were forerunners. We don't have time to look at them. Uh, but forerunners in England, uh, like uh, John Wycliffe and, uh, and the Lollards. Perhaps I'll just pause on this portrait for a moment. I know in this country uh, you like to have a clear separation between uh, Bible history uh, and political power. If I'm right, church and state is very clearly divided. Uh, in England, it's not the same. In England, if you go around our Houses of Parliament, you will find lots of uh, portraiture uh, about Bible themes um, and uh, lots of verses from Scripture uh, woven into the, the architecture, written in the floor. Uh, as you approach uh, through the very first door in the Houses of Parliament, our, our members of Parliament cross it every day. Uh, there written into the floor are the words, uh, unless the law builds the house, uh, the builders labour in vain. Uh, but they wanted to put up a whole series of portraits about what makes England great. This is back in the 1920s when it was still called Great Britain uh, in those days. Uh, but right across the walls, they have this huge portrait of English people uh, reading uh, the Bible, the Lollards, the Wycliffeites. Uh, here they are. They're, uh, they're not in their local parish church because it was dangerous to do, uh, but they're, they're reading the scriptures. We've got young and old, rich and poor. Uh, we've got uh, folk here on the lookout uh, for the church. There, there, were, uh, there were some pioneering this in the early centuries, like uh, John Wycliffe's followers. But it's not really until the time. We thought we'd reach him eventually. Not really until the time of William Tyndale that the English Bible uh, is really put into the hands of all of the English people. He is the pioneer uh, Bible translator uh, during the Reformation in England. He's a, a scholar in Oxford at Magdalen Hall, uh, now Hartford College, but he's, he's uh, alarmed by the lack of interest in the Scriptures uh, by the scholars that he's studying with. He says, uh, Oxford is packed full of clergymen. It uh, still is today, just the same. There's clergy uh, everywhere you look, but he's scornful of their shallow theological knowledge. Typical ordination course in those days involves reading lots of Christian theologians, uh, but not reading uh, the prophets and the apostles. You had to do eight or nine years of theological study before you were deemed qualified to open the Bible and start working uh, on the original texts. And he complains in one of his tracts, uh, the practice of prelates, 1530, uh, that an Oxford and Cambridge scholar, uh, no man shall look in the scriptures until he be uh, nursled or nursed in heathen learning uh, all these years and armed with false principles with which he's clean shut out of his understanding of scripture. He laments that English theologians spend all their time disputing about words and vain opinions pertaining as much to the healing of a man's heel as to the health of his soul. But his diagnosis in, uh, for his, his people, the English-speaking people, is very straightforward. They must have the Bible in their own language, not just in the university cities, but in every parish church uh, and in every family home. Uh, when uh, Bible reading is strong, says Tyndale, the church and the nation flourish. When Bible reading is weak the church and the nation are in a parlous state because knowledge of the gospel and knowledge of godliness 
uh, begins to die out. Uh, and the English Christians in his day were shockingly ignorant of the Bible. That was true of the clergy um, as well as the laity. So in 1530, just at the time when Tyndale's doing his work, the Bishop of London uh, decides he's going to test his clergy on their theological literacy. Uh, examines 56 men, uh, 56 priests in the church. 22 of them are banned uh, from ever preaching or pastoring again by the bishop. Uh, because of their very thin grasp of Christian truth. A few years later, Bishop uh, Hooper of Gloucester uh, investigates the standard of the clergy in his diocese, uh, and he asks them a number of questions. Uh, that firstly, he asks them about the commandments. 168 clergy could not recite uh, the commandments. Uh, 33 of them didn't know where to find them uh, in the Bible. Uh, Matthew's Gospel was the best guess. Uh, the book of Exodus... Deuteronomy, of course, uh, nine clergy uh, didn't even know how many commandments there were. Though you would have thought the clues in the, in the title, isn't it? The Ten Commandments. Um, that gives the game away. Then, then the bishop asks his clergy about the Lord's Prayer. Again, uh, ten of them are not able to recite uh, the Lord's Prayer. Thirty-nine don't know where to find it uh, in the Bible. Uh, Thirty-four uh, didn't know who who taught it, though again, you know, the Lord's Prayer, the clue is there. Uh, he asked them about the Apostles' Creed, this uh, great summary of Christian uh, doctrine. Um, and uh, again, several of them didn't know it, but more alarmingly to the bishop, 216 of them were not able to prove the truths of the Creed from the Scriptures, were unable to make the connection between the public teaching of the Church uh, and uh, what the Apostles had written. Tyndale has this, this passion. He says the church is going to be healthy uh, when clergy and people together are immersed in the Word of God. Therefore, it's got to be not in Latin, not in Greek and Hebrew, which only the universities speak. It's got to be uh, in English as well. On one occasion, a university-educated clergyman uh, tells him he's wasting his time. This is a waste of a life uh, to be involved in this project. And he famously replies according to John Fox's Book of Martyrs, if God spares my life, ere many years, I will enable the boy that drives the plough to know more of the Scriptures than you do. Um, now, that's a deliberate echo of Erasmus uh, in his Paraclesis. He's saying the, the agricultural labourer uh, is going to know the Scriptures as well as the university-educated uh, clergyman. He's an astonishing linguist. Uh, sets about learning Greek uh, and Hebrew to make uh, the translations uh, possible. It's illegal, of course, in England uh, because of the, the Wycliffite uh, legacy. It's illegal to translate the Bible into English, so he has to flee to the continent. Uh, he asks the Bishop of London for permission uh, to translate. The Bishop of London says, no Bibles in English. So he goes to Cologne and Antwerp, uh, sets up his printing press, um, and uh, begins to translate. Uh, the first... Uh, New Testament is produced in uh, 1526. Uh, perhaps 3,000 uh, copies uh, direct from the Greek, not from the Latin, direct from the Greek uh, into English. Only two, two copies survive these days of that initial print run. Uh, one of them is in the British Library. Uh, cost them several thousand pounds, uh, uh, over a million pounds uh, to buy a few years ago. The British Library have called it the most important printed book in uh, the English language. But when uh, Tyndale produces his Bible in English and he wants to disseminate it 
in English parish churches, it's a, a radical, dangerous thing to do. So he doesn't print it like a big lectern Bible. Uh, he deliberately prints it very small, thin paper designed for smuggling. That's the idea. It's got to be something that merchants and travellers can put on their boats or in their luggage uh, and get past the authorities at the ports uh, in England in order to be able to uh, disseminate through the churches. Uh, before long, thousands of New Testaments in English are being uh, smuggled in from Antwerp uh, to England. Dangerous business. Uh, some of the smugglers uh, were caught. Uh, Thomas Hitton uh, of, of Kent. Uh, we remember him as the first uh, martyr of the English Reformation. Uh, he was burnt alive at Maidstone uh, in 1530 because they found one of Tyndale's uh, English Bibles in his possession. Uh, likewise, John Frith, uh, here he is, uh, one of Tyndale's friends, uh, captured on a trip uh, back to England by the authorities. He's put on trial. Uh, where do you expect a trial on these themes to take place? Actually in St. Paul's Cathedral uh, in the middle of London. Put on trial in front of the bishop uh, because of uh, this work of, of releasing the Scriptures so the church doesn't control the Bible any longer, uh, but it's, it's out in the hands uh, of every person. He's burnt at Smithfields uh, in 1533. Uh, James Bainham, uh, a, a London lawyer, uh, would be another. Uh, when they burn him, um, he, uh, he, he has a, a copy of, of Tyndale's New Testament uh, in his hands, uh, proclaims, uh, if I should not return again unto the truth, this word of God would damn me both body and soul at the day of judgment. I've got to stand with the Scriptures rather than uh, the teaching of the church. Well, uh, the Bishop of London uh, has a rather uh, unusual strategy. Uh, one of them is to try and find these smugglers and uh, stamp out uh, that, uh, that industry uh, right at the source. Uh, the other is to buy up as many English Bibles as he can on the black markets. So he actually puts his spies out there to, to try and get in uh, many of these uh, 3,000 in the first print run. And then he makes a giant pile of Bibles outside St. Paul's Cathedral and sets a match to them uh, and burns them all up. Uh, Tyndale's not too concerned because he's sold 3,000 Bibles. Um, so he simply plows the profits back into an even bigger run, uh, print run the next time. His, uh, his translation is deliberately challenging some of the ecclesiastical status quo. Here are uh, four uh, famous Greek words. You'll find them all the way through the, the New Testament. Um, and uh, the way in which they were typically translated and the way in which Tyndale translated them. So presbyteros, uh, normally translated as priest. Read Tyndale's New Testament and he has the word elder. Ecclesia, uh, not the church any longer, but now congregation. Uh, agape uh, had been typically translated by, by English theologians as charity. Uh, Tinder has love and metanoia uh, rather than uh, penance. It is uh, repent. So it's not just about putting the Bible out there. It's also showing that when you engage with the text at first hand, it can begin to shake your, uh, your ecclesiological assumptions about what the church is, about what Christian ministry is, uh, about what the fruit of the Spirit uh, would look like. And of course, uh, Tyndale's Bible is also 
molding the English language. He is the master of pithy prose. Uh, turns of phrase, many of them now very familiar in modern English. Tyndale uh, invents them. Uh, so the salt of the earth, that's, uh, that's Tyndale's translation. The powers that be, the signs of the times, uh, a law unto themselves, my brother's keeper, uh, let there be light. Uh, these are all phrases we're very familiar with. Uh, never heard in English until Tyndale crafts them as he's putting the Bible into the language of the people. After the New Testament, uh, he begins on the Old Testament. Uh, there, there is one story that he translates. Uh, in those days, every scholar knew Latin. Greek is more difficult. Uh, Hebrew, uh, to a, a Western scholar, almost impossible. So Erasmus uh, learns Greek, but when he gets to Hebrew, he gives up. Uh, and he simply says, uh, life is too short. There's, there's no way I'm going to understand this language. And he, he's, the, he's the biggest brain in Europe. Um, but Tyndale devotes himself to Hebrew as well as Greek. Very unusual. And after having translated the New Testament, he begins on the Olds. And he, he gets all the way from Genesis through to half the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, half the way through Deuteronomy, and then is in a boat uh, along the Dutch coast, and they're, they're caught in a storm um, and are capsized. And all his writing materials uh, and this, uh, this translation of those five books um, is, is lost in the wave. So he has to begin again. And eventually his Pentateuch in English uh, is published in 1530. Again, new theological words that you will be very familiar with, uh, which Tyndale is inventing or coining as he's wrestling with these uh, Hebrew concepts. So the word atonement, at one moment, never been used before uh, until Tyndale uh, uses that for his translation. Passover, again that's his words, the scapegoats, uh, the mercy seats. After the Pentateuch, he continues into the history books, and then in 1535, uh, a false friend betrays him uh, and his work to the Habsburg authorities uh, in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, a chap called Henry Phillips uh, infiltrates this, this Bible smuggling, Bible translating industry, um, and then uh, tells uh, the Spanish authorities about it. Spain in those days, the Habsburg dynasty, uh, ruled in the Netherlands. Um, and so they arrest Tyndale, close down the presses, uh, burn the manuscripts uh, that they can find. And William Tyndale, uh, this pioneer scholar, uh, Bible translator, is taken uh, to a castle uh, outside Brussels. He's put on trial, uh, and then he is executed October of 1536. Um, at the stake, he was, he was garroted, um, strangled uh, by the executioner, probably with a a rope twisted around his neck, um, and then his body was burnt. Here's the, the famous woodcut from John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, but we read in that account of uh, Tyndale's final moments that the need of the gospel in England lay on his heart uh, still at that point. And as he died, almost with his last breath, his, his final recorded words of his life are, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Uh, in other words, uh, please, Lord, uh, might Bible translating into English be possible back in the home country? 
uh, no longer have to be under subterfuge uh, in, in secret. He's praying, of course, for Henry VIII, uh, the King of England. Most remarkably, that uh, martyr's prayer is answered just two years later uh, after Tyndale's uh, execution. Uh, King Henry VIII decides it's a good idea. Let's do it if we're going to be a Reformation kingdom. Uh, let's have the Bible, uh, not just in Latin, held on by the universities and the theologians. Let's have the Bible in English in every parish church in uh, the country. The Royal Injunctions of 1538. Tyndale didn't live to see it, but the Royal Injunctions order that a copy of the English Bible be made freely available in every parish church. Called it the, the very lively word of God that every Christian man is bound to embrace believe and follow if you look to be saved. If you know the famous front cover, this is the first authorised Bible in English before the King James Version. It's the, the Henry VIII Version. And on the front page, Henry VIII, uh, you'll see there, has put his face uh, on his throne um, as the king. Um, no mention of Tyndale, uh, but Henry VIII, and he, uh, in, this, uh, in this portrait, is parceling out the Bible uh, to the people. On the one side, uh, he's giving it to the bishops, who then give it to the clergy, uh, who preach it in the congregations. And on the other side, uh, he's giving it to uh, the leading nobles and barons, uh, who give it to the politicians, again, uh, for their construction of, uh, of the nation. Cranmer, who uh, you'll hear a little bit more about this evening, uh, writes the preface to that Bible, and he urges the people of England, immerse yourself in the scriptures. He calls the Bible uh, a better jewel in our house than either gold or silver and insists uh, it won't edify only just great doctors. It will also edify publicans and fishermen uh, and shepherds. All the people of England should read this precious book. Men, women, young, old, learned, unlearned, rich, poor, priests, laymen, lords, ladies, officers, tenants, and mean men, virgins, wives, widows, lawyers, merchants, artificers, husbandsmen, and all manners of persons of whatever estate or condition soever they be should read uh, this book. Ever since those dates, ever since uh, William Tyndale pioneered this great move, uh, it's been legal in England uh, to own a Bible. It's been legal to have uh, the Bible in the parish church and in the family home uh, and teach it to your children. Uh, but Tyndale is the pioneer. English-speaking Christians, and I guess that means all of us in this room, uh, we owe a great deal to William Tyndale. Linguist, theologian, translator, martyr, uh, giving his life to put the word of God uh, into the hands of the people who speak uh, the English tongue. Uh, and uh, I put it to you that William Tyndale says to us this morning, uh, grab hold of the word of God uh, and don't let it fall from your grasp. Don't let it be a closed book to you. It's not that the church is now closing it. Maybe you yourselves uh, are, are closing it. But don't let it fall from your grasp. Make the most of the tremendous privilege we have to possess the Bible in our own language. Read it, meditate upon it, uh, immerse yourself in it. Because Tyndale says, uh, the word of God 
is the most precious book in the world. Uh, that's why he gave his life uh, to make this project possible. Uh, it's God's book. It's the message of salvation uh, for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quarter to 11. That means my time is up. Uh, but uh, am I right? Do I have a... We've got, we've got an opportunity just for a few, a few questions before the next service begins. You've been a very patient audience this morning. I was kind of surprised that Henry VIII was willing to distribute it. What was his motivation? To, to bug the church people? Was that where he was coming from? <laughs> so uh, H Henry VIII is one of these um, rather um, ambivalent, unpredictable rulers. You never quite know what Henry VIII is going to do next. Um, so uh, he was married uh, at that period to Anne Boleyn, um, his second wife. And Anne Boleyn was a great fan of the Reformation. Um, so when they were in bed together at night, um, Anne used to give Henry copies of William Tyndale's writings um, and used to feed him these, uh, these Reformation tracts so that the king was being softened up in that sense. He also has people like um, uh, Thomas Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury, trying to push him um, politically. So a wife on one side and advisors on the other um, and decides to do it. Could you speak a little bit about Thomas, Sir Thomas More's involvement with uh, William Tyndall and his pursuit of him? Hmm. So Thomas More is, is now remembered uh, really as um, a great saint. Uh, in fact, he was canonized uh, by the Pope in the 1930s. Uh, he was executed, uh, you remember, under Henry VIII. Um, and certainly in our schools, a man for all seasons... Uh, would be the typical portrait of Thomas More. Uh, but uh, Thomas More is also um, leading the charge against this distribution of the Bible in English, um, and he is pursuing um, the, the smugglers uh, to try and stamp them out, and is, is happy to use physical violence to make that happen. Um, so um, he, he does say some, uh, some very sharp things, that if you only watch A Man for All Seasons or read the play, you'd be surprised to hear More saying. Uh, he says of, uh, of the first martyr in England, Thomas Hitton, uh, who had a copy of the English Bible, um, he says it, it would be better um, for them to have hot um, pokers thrust through their tongues um, and really being in the flames as a sign of the flames that God is about to inflict on them eternally. Um, now, that's, that's very typical of 16th century theological language. Um, we don't expect it from more because of his later reputation, uh, but he clashed a lot with Tyndale. It's always said that King Henry VIII split from Rome because he wanted a divorce, but does the distribution of the Bible play into that as well? It's, it's all happening at around about the same time. So uh, officially the break with Rome uh, comes two years before Tyndale's execution uh, and four years before the Bible is authorised in English in every parish. Um, so again, the king's motivations are quite difficult to discern. Uh, but what his, um, what his advisors, like Thomas Cranmer, are telling him is that uh, the rule of the church can never um, overrule 
the rule of the apostles in Scripture. Um, so whatever the Pope tells you, or whatever the Synod says, uh, in, in Henry's case about marriage, um, there is no way that that can trump what the, the Scriptures themselves would say about marriage and marrying your brother's wife, for example. Um, so they're, they're deliberately pointing the king, don't listen to the ecclesiastics, listen to the word of God instead. Time for one more. Yeah, would you say something about the Wycliffeites and sort of what was going on on the ground before Tyndall and what the climate was regarding the Bible? I, that would just be interesting to hear more about them. So, uh, John Wycliffe, um, actually my um, seminary in Oxford, Wycliffe Hall, is named after John Wycliffe. He's the first person um, to encourage the translating of the Bible uh, into vernacular languages, um, and his followers do that. Um, so the first English Bible is actually produced in the 1380s, um, which is 150 years before Tyndale, but it's, it's not produced from Greek and Hebrew. Um, it's simply a translation of the Latin into English. So all the mistakes are, are multiplied um, in that way. Um, and uh, the authorities are so alarmed that they ban the translation of the Bible across the country. It's not banned in the rest of Europe. It's only banned in England by the bishops. And so this underground movement begins, uh, known as the Wycliffeites, or sometimes known as the Lollards, um, and many of them are exterminated in the 15th century. But it becomes a, a sort of house church, underground church movement. Um, and when the Reformation springs up in the 16th century, um, many of these Lollard churches begin to join in with it. Thank you very, very much, Andrew. Thank I you. Hope, nice to uh, see you. Hope to see many of you tonight.